0: The uh, book of Hebrews was uh, written to a group of Jewish believers who were scattered around the Roman Empire, uh, likely in larger cities, huddled together in uh, groups and experiencing an increasing degree of persecution for their faith. In fact, they were being tempted to abandon their confidence in Christ alone and go back to something that was less perilous. Uh, Tempted to go back into Judaism, which at least in those days wasn't actively being oppressed. Or maybe to abandon the whole thing completely and and just go back to their their normal lives because the the cost of following Jesus was, was so much. And really the first two chapters of the book of Hebrews opens up with a reminder to the people about the superiority of Christ and why they need to follow him. And so that's really been the title of our series, these three messages in the first two chapters of the book of Hebrews. And we began by looking at the mystery of Christ, that he is revealed in general revelation in all of creation, which he created, and also in special revelation through the Word. It was the Word that became flesh. It was God's Word of creation that became the Word that then proclaimed the gospel. And then we saw the the glory of Christ in terms of who He is, being the very Son of God, of God's very essence, co-equal to God. Fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man. He is the one who then, as a result, is able to bring a salvation that only God could bring. And so he said, not only is it important to know who he is, but what he's done. Uh, that he is the author and the finisher of our salvation. And then why it matters. There's a warning there at the beginning of chapter 2, not, not to drift away from this, not to depart from it, because there is no greater salvation. There is no, there is no other salvation. And that all you can do is cling to the hope of salvation in Christ. Now, this week, we want to turn and look at the humility of Christ. Seeing the mystery of Christ, the glory of Christ, now the humility of Christ. And, and this is laid out for us from chapter 2, verse 5, all the way down through the end of the chapter, verse 18. And we're going to see today how Christ subjected himself to creation and to the covenant in his humiliation. He subjected himself to the creation and to the covenant. And so with that in mind, listen to God's word. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he from whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified All of one source. And that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Jesus Christ humbled himself by coming to the earth, taking on the form of sinful and cursed mankind, and in so doing, subjected himself to creation and to the covenant. The first one we see is the creation. Now, this is in the opening section of chapter 2, verse 5, and if you look in your Bibles and just sort of scan down through about verse 9, this comprises the notion that Christ himself came under creation. It begins in verse 5 by saying that it was not the angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Let's just clarify what that means for a moment. Now, I know that there is a lot of um, teaching out there that would tell you that when you die, you go to heaven. Heaven if you're a christian i just want to clarify exactly what the scriptures teach about what happens to you when you die and where you go and where you will spend eternity heaven as it is described in the bible is the abode of god it's god's home it's where god sends angels from is where God rules and reigns and exercises his absolute freedom and autonomy over all of creation and redemptive history. Heaven is the place where we have a vision of the ongoing worship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. When believers are told about their place of location upon the last breath they breathe in this life, it is said that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It'll be with Him. But ultimately, when He returns to judge the living and the dead and to give the resurrection to all and to establish the new heavens and the new earth, it is upon that new earth that He places us. Now, as much as we would love to see ourselves up in heaven, the reality is that heaven comes to us. If you read 1 Peter chapter 3, you will see a story of the unfolding of creation, And he will either destroy that creation, even at the atomic level, and recreate it, or he will so purge all of the effects of sin and the curse off of this heavens and earth that it will be like it is made new. But in the end, it will be destroyed. It will be destroyed by fire. So if you've ever wondered, you will all be cremated eventually. Everything that exists in this world is going to be burned up and incinerated. And it is all going to be reborn and recreated. And if you go all the way to Revelation 21, you'll see that God Himself in the New Jerusalem comes down to dwell upon the new earth and dwell among His children. It is that great, glorious world that is in view here in chapter two, verse five. It's that future world. You're going to have a resurrected body, a physical one, and you're going to live on a new earth. You are going to look into the expanse of a new heavens, and you are going to be with the Lord forever. Now, it is not to the angels that God promises that glorious eschatological reality. It is to us. And so here, in order to make it clear, he says that it is not the angels that God subjected this world that is to come, but it is to mankind. And he reaches back into the Old Testament again, as he is often doing in this book, and he borrows a psalm. And in this particular case, he, he reaches back and he grabs Psalm 8. And Psalm 8, if you were to read that, you'll notice that it is a psalm that extols creation and God's decision to create man and woman, male and female, together in His image, and to give them the authority to rule the world. That together, as equal partners, they will dominate this world. They will bring it under subjection to them. And Psalm 8 extols that, and Psalm 8 describes that. And Psalm 8 shows how human beings were created for a short time lower than the angels, lower in their purity, lower in their power, lower in their presence, lower even in their position to come up with a spontaneous alliterated outline. And they were not like angels. In fact, we are far less than angels, but only for a time. Because in the resurrection, we will actually rule over the angels and rule over this new earth when it finally is subjected to us. The author is going to tell us that the world is subjected to us, but not really. And why is that? Because of the curse. We live on a cursed earth. Everything is working against us. Sin, death, disease, weeds, all the things that fight against us. He says one day, though, that's all going to be overcome. And it's not going to be for the glory of angels. It's going to be for the glory of image bearers. And so he reaches back into Psalm 8, look what he says. It is testified somewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Stop there just for a moment. He says, what is man? He doesn't say, who is man? He says, what is man? Man, mankind, was created. God created Man, woman, male, female. He created them so that they could together bear his image. You can't have the image of God represented on earth if you do not have both male and female. That is why it was not good for Adam to be alone. Not just because Adam was not capable of doing what he had to do by himself. Adam was created perfect and sinless. Adam was not some inept person who was bumbling around the garden and couldn't figure out how things worked, and so God had to create somebody because it was pointless for him to be left alone, like some husband left at home by himself for the weekend who doesn't know how to feed himself or do anything. Diminishes man when you think about him that way. It diminishes Adam when you think about him that way. No, Adam was created. He was a perfect, sinless being. What was not good was that God was not fully represented in Adam. God says, my image is not fully represented unless both male and female are created. Adam had all the animals parade before him, not in order to see if one of them would make a good wife, but rather to see that everything was created in this pair, and therefore realize that he himself was incomplete. What did God do? God created man, mankind, and he created them together to be his image bearer. And you made him together, male and female, for a little while, lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. You see, in this psalm, it says, in the original dominion over the earth, mankind was able to rule it. He was able to bring it under submission. It's actually the word that is translated submission in other places in the Bible. Slaves are to submit to their masters. It means to to come under something that was organized. Originally, man was created and all of creation submitted to him. But now that has been changed by the curse and works against him. But the hope in this passage is looking forward to an even greater Adam. When we say that Christ came and subjected himself to creation, ultimately he is doing so so that he could be the new and better Adam, as we sung this morning. He could be the final Adam, the perfect Adam. He could do everything that Adam failed to do. In every respect that Adam failed and fell, Christ would be faithful and uphold. And so the author pivots now from looking at mankind and his ability to bring creation under his rule To reminding man that he has fallen now verse 8 in putting everything in subjection to him he left nothing outside his control at present however we do not yet see everything in subjection to him mankind is in a bad spot mankind is hopelessly lost he is absolutely separated from god he is not even able to control the world upon which he was placed He is not able to fulfill his duty to bring it under submission. You know, this wars against so much of the philosophy out there in certain sections of broader evangelicalism, which would suggest that somehow by either proliferation or by politics, we can somehow take over this world again and rule it. There's an entire branch of evangelicals they call dominion theology, where they think if they just keep breeding enough and they just have enough children they can somehow take over the whole world again for Christ, and in doing so, they will usher in the kingdom. How they think if they can somehow elect Christians to positions of power and authority, that through the political machine, they'll turn things back to God or something of that nature. That's an utterly hopeless endeavor. Uh, The Lord has already told us that this earth is on a crash course with destruction. It doesn't mean that you simply throw off any effort to try to mitigate the corrosive effects of sin, but it means you don't put your hope in man. He doesn't control it now, and he's not going to control it in the future. It's only going to be controlled when the new and better Adam comes to control it. And that's exactly where the writer to the Hebrews directs your attention next. Look at what he says. It is true that man has fallen. It is true that the world is against him, but, verse 9, To advance his argument, he says this, we see him who for a little while was also, you could say, made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Look to Jesus. Called this series, Looking to Jesus. Whenever you get into the darkest despair about what's going on in the world, what do you do? You don't turn your eyes inward. You don't turn your eyes to a political figure. You turn your eyes to Jesus. And the author here of the letter to the Hebrews is saying that in the midst of their persecution and their trial, in the midst of their temptation to go back to the religion of Judaism, uh, in the midst of their suffering under the oppressive forces of the world who hates them, he says, Turn your eyes to Jesus. Look to him. He also was made lower than the angels. You say, How is that possible? It's possible because he was made a man, he was truly man. As was read to you earlier from Philippians chapter 2, he didn't just pretend to be a man. He didn't just come looking like a man. He came as a man, subject to all of the cursed flesh that man inhabited at the time. Jesus did not take on a body that was not affected by the curse. He had the same weaknesses that you and I have. In fact, it's one of the very glorious realities of the incarnation. That's how he can relate to us. But he didn't say, okay, I'll come down and I'll take on the form of man and I'll be truly man, but I'm going to be a glorified man. I'm going to be a man that doesn't experience all the consequences of the curse. After all, I didn't sin. No, he says, I will come and I will take on the form of a man and not just a man, but a cursed man, a fallen man. I will bear in my body all of the consequences of Adam's sin, all the pain, all the fatigue, all the sorrow, all the tears all the rejection. I'll feel all of it, even though I didn't do anything to deserve it. And I will feel all of it, and I will know all of it, and I will live in that cursed flesh for all the years of that incarnational ministry so that I could put that cursed, death to f- cursed flesh to death on the cross. I'm going to wear it and bear it until I can hang it and kill it. And so it is in that regard that he was made lower than the angels subjected to the very creation that he created. He created the whole world and then allowed himself to be crushed under the weight of it. And so when the author says to to look to Jesus, is to look to Jesus, the, the glorified, resurrected, ascended, interceding Savior who was gentle and lowly and crushed for our iniquity. You see, the paradox is startling. But he was made lower than the angels in order that he might be crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. The suffering and the death came into the world because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And he suffered and he died so that, as a necessary measure, as a necessary consequence, so that, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You see, Jesus Christ had to come in the incarnation. He had to become as weak as Adam in order that he might die for Adam to be the perfect Adam. Christ had to come and he had to take on and in himself the cursed flesh that Adam inherited and deserved because of his sin and live a sinless life even in the midst of that cursed flesh so that he could fulfill the law perfectly so that his standard of righteousness would never be diminished and so that he could then give that perfect righteousness to all who put their faith and trust in him. That's the essence of the gospel. So let me just say a word of encouragement to you this morning. If you are here under the weight of trying to live up to the law of God and you're crushed under this constant awareness of your failure to do so. I have some great news for you this morning. The good news is that God's standard of holiness has not changed, but that he sent one who would be truly man and to live a sinless life in perfect conformity and obedience to that holy standard and then die the death that those of us who fell short of that should have died in order to give us not only his resurrection life, but also the holiness of all of his deeds done in the flesh. And all of that imputed and given to you, so that when you stand before the Lord one day, it is not going to be any of the deeds that you have done that will evaluate whether or not you are welcomed into his glory. It'll be only the work of his son. But that couldn't be given to you if he didn't come down in order to win it. And so what the writer to the Hebrews wants to say Is look to Jesus, the one who is the greater Adam, the one who came subject to creation and then lived perfectly as Adam should have, died the death that Adam should have died in order to give the life to us and all of Adam's descendants who put their trust in him. Now, Christ is crowned with glory and honor because of his death and showing the grace of God because of his death. His sufferings and his death are the events that bring him higher to the point where all of his glory and his honor is revealed. Everything that he was subjected to in creation and the death that he died is now the very basis for the endless praise and glory and honor that will be given to him by those of us who are the redeemed. That's an awesome thought, isn't it? You're going to be able to glorify him not just because of who he is, but because of what he's done and because you understand that is being applied to you. So Christ under creation. Number two, Christ under the covenant. The author continues on in verse 10, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It was fitting, it is appropriate, that For whom and by whom all things exist, this is speaking of Christ, that Christ himself, the one who created everything, was able to bring many sons to glory. There's a family connection. The glory is the glory from which we fell short. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, God created us originally in glory. Created us as sons and daughters to manifest his glory. Paul could have said that all have sinned and fallen short of the holiness of God, and he would have been right. All have sinned and fallen short of the majesty of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the expectations of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the word of God. Fill in the blank. There's an infinite number of things that we fell short of. But what does he choose to say? We fell short of the glory of God. In our sinless perfection, male and female created equally to bear the image of God were his glory. And they fell short of it when they fell. And therefore, when God enters into a covenant relationship with man, he says that if you will fulfill your end of this covenant, you will be restored to glory. And when he does that with Abraham, remember, he calls him to bring the animals and he calls him to cut them in half and to create this pathway that they would walk through. And the idea would be that Abraham would walk through that pathway of blood, indicating that were he to fall short of the covenant, that this would be done to him as a sign of the punishment that he would incur. And God overpowers Abram and he puts him to sleep. And then he goes through instead by himself. It was unprecedented for the superior person to go through that process anyway, much less to do it for somebody like. Abram, who was so much below him, but what makes it absolutely mind-boggling is that God did it as a way of indicating the fact that he would fulfill both his part of the bargain and Abram's part of the bargain, knowing that Abraham couldn't. By walking through that pathway of blood on his own, he is saying that I am foretelling of the reality that one day I am going to have to become Abraham to die for Abraham, to pay the price for Abraham's sin. And so in making that covenant and in agreeing to that covenant with us, he subjected himself to his own covenant. Now he is the one who is going to bring us back to glory because he is the founder. He is the one who created our salvation. He is the hero of our salvation. He is the one who not only created it, is the architect of it, but he is the one who is going to bring it to completion. It is going to be perfect and finished and it's going to be done through his suffering. What does that mean? What does it mean that it's going to be made perfect through his suffering? Isn't it perfect already? I mean, how does Jesus do something that's, that's imperfect? That's the question you should be asking. The answer is that he's not imperfect or um, insufficient. When, when he says he's going to make it perfect, he's going to bring it to its conclusion. That's what the word meant, to be complete. He is the author and the finisher. He is the founder and completer. He is the one who not only created the rules and the standards, but he is also the one who took upon himself the role of fulfilling it on our behalf and then paid for our failures and imputed his success to us. He brought it to the end, everyone. It's all finished in him. We sang it this morning. What he does, what he completes, what he accomplishes is completely done. That's what makes what we do here at the Lord's table fundamentally different than what would happen these days at a Roman Catholic Mass. Because there's a belief among some that Christ needs to be crucified over and over again, that his atoning work needs to happen over and over again in order to pay for the sins. And so people are invited to come, and usually it's a priest who has to administer it. And he goes through a ritual whereby he claims that that wine and bread is actually turned into the body and blood of Jesus. And then the people who are to be infused with that grace, literally ingesting it with the bread and the wine, are given this by the priest who is the intermediator between them and God. And through this process, they believe that their sins are atoned for. And what makes it completely different for us is that what we believe we are celebrating here, is not the ongoing atoning work of God, but the finished atoning work of Christ. He doesn't have to be crucified over and over again. It was once and for all, and it's completely done. And that's why it's a celebration. That's why we rejoice in it. That's why Communion Sunday should be the happiest Sunday. That's why it should be a time where we rejoice. It's not a time where we sing sad, slow songs and we darken the lights and everyone has some like, morose period of introspection. No, this is a time where we look inside, as Peter says, and find Jesus, <laughs> that he is inside, his righteousness. And therefore, we shout for joy and celebrate that we don't have to find some righteousness of our own inside, nor think ourselves unworthy to come because of what we've done this week. Far be it from you to think you're unworthy to come because of any sin. But like the old hymn says, the only thing you need is to have a need of Him. Is to understand your unworthiness and then to come and to receive and to rejoice in His finished work. So, in bringing many sons to glory... And being the founder and the perfecter and the finisher of our faith through the suffering on the cross, he continues verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are, you could literally translate this being sanctified, all have one source. And that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. I love this. Talks with those who are sanctified and those who are being sanctified. First of all, sanctification means to set apart. You can just jot that in your Bible. It always means the same thing, to be set apart. It's from the word holy. means to be made holy, made separate. And so, he says here that because of the finished work on the cross, that by the electing love of God and by the Holy Spirit granting us faith to believe, he has sanctified and set apart those who are his And not only has he separated them once and for all, but it says here that there are those who are being sanctified. And I want to pause for a moment to clarify something. Many people will use the term progressive sanctification. They'll say that, um, you know, you get saved, you're justified, and then you are constantly sanctified, and then one day you're glorified. And what I'd like to do is clarify and, and perhaps correct some misunderstanding around the word sanctification. The Bible doesn't say that you are being sanctified. Scriptures don't teach progressive sanctification. Now, I know that we use the term that way, and I don't believe people mean something that is wrong in the way that they're using it. I just don't think the term is appropriate. The term is used as a once-and-for-all act of God to separate you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life, from death to life. From an object of His wrath to an object of His mercy and love. It's a one-time separating. What we talk about as sanctification is really just a progress in maturity, a growing, a fruit-bearing, an increasing in holiness, an increasing in our love for God, an increasing in our desire to obey. Understanding that what once was the burden of the law has now become something we can joyfully and graciously obey. But because of His power... And so, don't worry if you are in a conversation with me and you say, oh, I'm going through this trial and it's really sanctifying me. I'm not going to stop you and say, no, my son. Don't say that anymore. And I'm also going to anticipate your question because you said, wait a second. Now, I was listening carefully for once and just a few minutes ago, you did say this could be translated being sanctified. (gasps) You got me. Except... When he is saying being sanctified, he isn't saying you individuals are being sanctified. He is saying that all of those who are sanctified and all of those in this mass of lost humanity that are periodically being sanctified as redemptive history unfolds. So the redemptive work of Christ on the cross sanctifies and separates everyone. Some it's already happened and some it's going to happen. They will be sanctified. They are being sanctified. Right at this moment, hundreds are being sanctified, maybe even this day as they come to faith and the knowledge of Christ. And as a believer, you are constantly growing to maturity. That's the language that the Bible uses, growing in to maturity in Christ. So with those two things clarified, hopefully, he says that for he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified all have one source. They all have one hope. They all have one father. And that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now, I love this term. He doesn't call them sons here. He calls them brothers. And the author reaches back into Psalm 22, a beautiful psalm, Psalm of David. And in Psalm 22:22 it says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Now, in the original context, David is singing this song, and David is talking about David. He is going through his own trials. It begins with him looking to God and saying, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? But then, towards the end of the psalm, it pivots, and he says, no, I'm going to praise you, and I am going to invite my brothers to come and praise you as well. We're going to extol and praise the Lord for his mercy and his kindness. And even though it originally was about David and written by David, Jesus reaches back and he says, this psalm also has a great fulfillment in me. Remember, he quotes it when he's on the cross, my God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. What David didn't realize is that the greater David would come. The ultimate David would come. That what David was experiencing was a shadow of what the Lord would experience. And now the Lord Jesus reaches back and he he borrows this language to articulate his own struggle and his own sorrow. And the writer to the Hebrews does the same to clarify it. And he says, not only will David say this, but the Lord himself will declare that we are his brothers. In the midst of the assembly, in the midst of the church, he will sing your praise. He will praise the Father for the work of redemption that allows him to look at us not just as children, but as brothers. All throughout the New Testament, Jesus calls his disciples learners. He calls them friends. He does not called them brothers until after the resurrection after he has died for them, been buried, after he has risen from the dead, and before he ascends, then he says, go and tell my brothers. They're not just my disciples anymore. They're not just my friends anymore. They're my brothers now. And he rejoices in it. He rejoices over us. He rejoices over the reality that we are now sons and daughters of God along with him. That we have now become joint heirs with him, and we celebrate with him, and he turns all the glory to God for that. And so in verse 13, he borrows from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17, and then verse 18, where he says, I will put my trust in him, and behold, I am the children that God has given me. You see, all of this Old Testament prophecy about the hope that is in the Messiah is realized in Christ. And he says that he will allow them to put all their trust in him and he and the Father. And all the children that God has given him, not one will be lost. All will be brought together into his family. All of them to enjoy his glory forever. Now he goes on to describe this for us in more detail. Because this is part of the covenant relationship we now have with God. Somebody had to come and had to fulfill that on a human level. Somebody had to do all the things that Abraham was to commit himself to do, but couldn't. And so he says in verse 15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, meaning humans who could die, he himself likewise partook of the same things in his incarnation, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, every one of us broke the covenant. Every one of us broke the agreement. Every single one of us, when we sin, are, are no longer able to, to look to God and to say that we have upheld our portion. And he knew that from the beginning. And so he puts into play a plan to rescue those who needed redemption. But the only way for him to do it legitimately The only way for him to maintain his righteous standard was to actually take on that cursed flesh and live out in perfection Abraham's part of the bargain. And that's what he does. So that he could destroy the power of death. And when the power of death is personified, it is seen in the devil. His victory on the cross was a victory over sin and death and hell and the devil. You see, Satan has no power over us. But Satan has no control over the outcome of your life. Satan has no ability to do anything outside of the sovereign ordained plan of God. You don't need to bind Satan. You don't need to to run around casting out demons. You you don't need to assume that Satan is somehow personally at work in your life because your car won't start. He is not involved in anything that God does not ordain before the foundation of the world to be for your good. Remember when he talks to Peter and he says that the devil has asked to sift him, and Jesus said, I've allowed him, but I'm praying for you. Maybe if you're like me, you would have thought, well, why couldn't you just say no? <laughs> I mean, I appreciate being prayed for, but how about just no, you can't. But God had his purpose in it and sifting Peter. But Christ says, I'm there to pray for you and uphold you and give you strength. Job, you might recall, didn't read the book of Job. Fair enough? Job didn't know what happened in Job 1 and 2. Job didn't have the benefit of understanding that there was somehow this divine Drama going on outside a realm that he could observe. All he knew is that one day everything was fine and the next day everything was completely destroyed. But God in his kind mercy reminds Job towards the end that he is in control of everything, even the devil, and he doesn't do one single thing outside of his control. Is Satan an active agent in the world? Yes. Is he an autonomous, omniscient, omnipresent agent in the world? No. And so here we see that in the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, the very power of Satan, devil himself, destroyed. And then Christ is able to deliver all of those who used to fear death. They should because they broke the covenant. They should be like those animals cut in half and separated. But Christ says, I came to be cut for you. I came to bleed so you don't have to. Verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps. This word helps means to answer when one calls. It's a call for help. He says the angels, they don't get help, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He came as the greater Abraham so that he could help the sons of Abraham he came as a human being in order to enter into a covenant as a human being and fulfill that covenant as a human being and then die for all the human beings that did not fulfill that covenant as a human being so that he could be the ultimate Adam, the ultimate David, the ultimate Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Otherwise, he couldn't fulfill it. So that, and this is the purpose clause, very important, so that he might become, notice this, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This was a requirement. And as a result of the incarnation, he was able to be merciful. It means to be gentle and compassionate and tender. It means to empathize because you know what it's like to go through what they're going through. And he was faithful meaning he didn't do that by lowering God's standard. He didn't lower the expectation in order to rescue us. He maintained the absolute holy expectation of God and lived it out perfectly. And therefore, he can be that perfect high priest in the service of God, not having to make atonement for his own sin, like the human high priest did, but being able to go in on his own righteousness to make propitiation This is a word that means to satisfy divine wrath. It's not very common in the Bible. Uh, It's a relatively rare term. It's actually used, believe it or not, in Luke 18. And uh, it's in that famous account where the tax collector and the Pharisee are exchanging prayers. And both of them are going before the Lord and both of them are praying. And the Pharisee is quite pleased with his position before God thinks that he's in a good spot and so he basically thanks God that he's not like the tax collector who is standing beside him he stands there and he prays thus God I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners unjust adulterers or even like this tax collector he says I fast twice a week I give tithes at all that I get He says, I I follow all the rules. You know, I do what I'm supposed to do. I go to church when I'm supposed to. I pay my tithe when I'm supposed to. I do everything. It's legal. Everything's clean. Everything's right. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful on me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Literally, God, be my propitiation. Pay the penalty that I cannot pay. And he ends by saying, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And the great irony is, the tax collector goes down justified, even though his mind is no doubt swarming with all these ideas of how it's possible that God could forgive him. And the Pharisee goes away unjustified with his mind utterly convinced that he is worthy of salvation. You see, the great paradox here revealed to us is that he was both merciful and faithful. Therefore, he could make propitiation for the sins of all who had put their faith in him. And then he closes with this beautiful verse, verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted now you will remember that these believers are in the midst of a trial Uh, they're being tempted to to go back to the old way of life it's easier it's less pressure it's not going to cost them anything christ was tempted the same way you say how is that possible well you'll remember that he was tempted in the garden he even said to his father if there's any other way please reveal it He was tempted to believe that God had forsaken him. He was tempted in the wilderness to feed himself by his own power. He was tempted to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple mount in order to demonstrate his glory. All throughout his life, he was constantly being tempted, constantly being tried. In fact, there is nothing that you go through that he has not gone through already and conquered. And you might say, well, he didn't feel it the same way I feel it because he's God. My argument would be that he felt it worse than you feel it. And the reason is that you've got a breaking point. He didn't. Every temptation was laid upon him at infinite weight. And because of his divinity, he could not collapse under it. And therefore, everything that sin and death and hell and the devil could have thrown at him was thrown at him in full, unmitigated force. The entire duration of his life. There is nothing that you've experienced that he cannot say, I have experienced infinitely worse than you. But he says that with tenderness and compassion and drawing you to himself with that reality so that you don't come to him fearful of his judgment. You come to him because he's an empathetic high priest who says, I've already made atonement for that sin. Rest on my forgiveness. You know, that's not a heavy burden to carry. We were talking about this in the office this week, and Andrew gave me this great illustration that I'm gonna steal right now. He's saying, you know, it's like you're drowning. And you're just succumbing to the waves. And it's mere moments before of exhaustion you just collapse and succumb to the waters and go down to your death. And then somebody arrives and they throw out a life preserver to you, your answer to them is not, ah, the last thing I need is to be carrying something. Your answer is, thank you. I will carry this. I will hold on to this. I'll be rescued by this. That's the rescue that's being put out here. And the word used to describe that kind of rescue is the word help. And it's a different word than is used earlier in the text. He says here that he is able to help. It's a word that means to supply urgent, needed help. It was a military term. It is a term that means to rescue. That in the midst of your temptation, He comes. He is the reinforcements. He's the cavalry. He's the rescue. He's the helicopters coming over the mountain. He is the one who is going to come and deliver you and rescue you. And so the word help is a little bit weak there. It's rescue. And what I find particularly interesting in the use of this word is it's the same word the Septuagint uses to translate the Hebrew word azer. In Genesis chapter two, eighteen, when it says, It is not good for a man to be alone, but I will create a helper for him. It's the same word. God created woman to be that helper, that help in time of need, that rescuer, that deliverer. We have done much violence to the text of Scripture by suggesting that women are just there to help men in some diminutive position just there to offer some assistance, just some secondary bit player in the whole process. No, she was not only made equal with him to exercise dominion with him, but she was made because he needed her. And her identity was found in Christ. Her identity was found in God. Her identity was not found in Adam. Her glory is being created as the one who completes the incomplete image of God on earth. So, I just want to say a quick word to women today, your glory is not in being a wife or being a mother. Your highest calling is not to be a wife and a mother and somebody who just serves a husband. Your highest calling is to be the image bearer of God, and you have that in fullness in Christ. Now if he calls you to be a wife and to be a mother, that's a glorious calling. And you can do much for His glory in that. But don't think yourself somehow lesser or insufficient or further down in terms of importance because you're not a wife or a mother. In fact, God created the male and female, not man and wife. And He certainly didn't create women in general to submit to men in general. There is a toxic teaching out there in some circles that would seem to suggest that, that women in general are just to be submissive to men in general. There's nothing of that in Scripture. Pursue whatever the Lord puts on your heart to pursue. Pursue it with all your heart, mind, strength. Understanding that you bear His image. And the very word for helper, may it be rescued and recovered. This azer kinegdo, this one who had to be taken from Him in order to complete Him and help Him and rescue Him and to be along His side to together bear the image of God and exercise dominion over the world. That's the nature of your being. And in that, I hope all of you can rejoice no matter what stage of life you're at. Single, married, divorced. I want to say to you women, you are the image bearers of God. In the same way that Christ has said to come and help those who are in need, you are able, by the unique characteristics granted to you in your personhood, be a help as well. You see, these Hebrew Christians needed to remember that Jesus Christ is superior, as revealed in general revelation and special revelation, as revealed in who He is and what He did, and the importance of not drifting from that. And also in seeing that He came subject to creation, that He might fulfill every word of God that Adam failed to fulfill, and then to enter into covenant and to do it in a perfect way that Abraham couldn't so that he might become the greater Adam and the greater David and the greater Abraham in order that he might bring all of his sons and daughters to glory. Christian, if you're struggling this morning with anything, may your burden be lightened because you turn and you fix your eyes on him and you look to Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for this brilliant explanation of what you have done for us. For this author inspired by the Holy Spirit to put pen to paper to encourage these Jewish Christians so many years ago and yet so relevant to us today. As we prepare now to receive the symbol of your body and blood. To be invited to your table as your guests. May we show good manners. May we look around with joy at all who have been invited, realizing that none of us are here because of merit, that all are here because of grace, and that you in your gentleness and in your compassion and in your mercy went out to find us. Not to bring people around your table, that would strengthen your alliances or cause them to be indebted to you so that you might get something in return. But you went out into the highways and the hedges, as it were, and you pulled out the worthless ones, the homeless ones, the desperate ones, the poor ones, the ones who had no influence, and had no capacity to pay you back, and you spread the feast for them, and you said, come and enjoy, eat and drink at no cost. By your spirit, well up within our hearts now, sincere gratitude for all that you have done for us in Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.